crossing over at all hours. Eventually, I stopped answering the door. This is Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth, and they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Skip over to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Uh, Many of you have heard that passage, uh, maybe in a wedding ceremony, which is absolutely appropriate. I actually think that the context is much broader than that. Uh, Adam's problem was not that he was single. That's not a problem. Adam's problem was that he was alone and he was isolated and that wasn't good. And the solution was life-giving relationships. I'll define life-giving relationships in a little while, but for right now, just that was the solution, marriage being one of them. Marriage is not guaranteed to be a life-giving relationship, but it has potential for that. For me, all of this, this problem that Adam have, many of us have, we live in, we're crowded in here now. We live in a dense metropolitan area. Many of us spend a lot of time bumping into, rubbing shoulders with, hundreds of other people but we can still be isolated the reason that story about that woman was in the paper is because that doesn't happen very much people don't normally rot in their house for four years without anybody checking on them but i think it happens all the time and we don't know about it inside whatever you call your personality your spirit your soul your heart whatever's in here that doesn't show up on an autopsy that needs people You were designed, I was designed for relationships with other people, not just casual, not just superficial, true life-giving relationships. And if we don't have them, we wind up like that woman we read about. We're dead and nobody knows. The grass is cut, the male's being taken in, but there's there's nothing happening inside. There was a a study done in Australia. Uh, These guys, they tracked 1,500 people who were 70-plus years old. For 10 years, and this is what they found out. Those with the strongest network of friends and confidants live longer than those with the fewest friends and confidants. The beneficial effects on survival persisted across the decade, irrespective of other profound changes in individuals' lives, including the death of a spouse or close family members and the relocation of friends to other parts of the country. It was actually found that people with a close group of friends, that made more of a difference than how much contact people had with their family. Friends were more important than family in determining longevity. And you read that irrespective of the circumstances that happened. In her book, The Happiness Project, Gretchen Rubin says this. 
One thing is clear, a major key to happiness, in fact, the major key, is having close relationships with other people. We need close, long-term relationships. We need to be able to confide in others. We need to belong. We enjoy activities more when we're with other people. This is true not just of extroverts, but of introverts as well. In fact, people who claim to have at least five friends with whom they can discuss important problems, so that's not just superficial, five friends with whom they can discuss important problems, are 60% more likely to describe themselves as very happy. Unfortunately, a study published by the American Sociological Review in 2006 shows that the average American has only two close friends, and almost a quarter of Americans have no friend in whom they can, they can confide, a number that has doubled in the last two decades. So a quarter of Americans say they don't have one friend, period, 25%. I think there's 300 million people in our country. That's a lot of million people who don't have even one friend who they would say they can confide in. It's, and it's not just sad, it's devastating. We were created, again, for these life-giving relationships, and apart from those, we're going to die. We must enter into these things. Um, if you ever watch, I know y'all never watch TV because you're doing you know, holy and spiritual things. I do sometimes, and there are these commercials for weight loss products and um, exercise equipment are always on. And if you can read the fine print, that's always the same color as the background screen, so it's really difficult to see. It will say four best results. And then there's about 17 lines of what you need to do for the best results. And really the implication is if you want to look like the models that we paid to be on this ad, then this is what you need to do. You need to have liposuction. You need to work out 10 hours a day, 500-calorie diet, all of these things that you're supposed to do if you want to look like this. Genesis 1 and 2 is really the four best results section of the Bible. In Genesis 3, sin enters the world and everything goes haywire. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, regardless of what you think about, was it seven 24-hour days? Or don't even just set that over here for right now and just look at the meat of what is being communicated, that God created. Look at what he's saying to Adam and Eve. You get this for best results. If you want your life to be, if you want to live your life the best, the way it was intended to be lived, there are four things that you need. I'm going to hit three of them really fast, and one of them we're going to spend a little more time on. The first thing you need is communion with God. We were all made for a relationship with God. Anthropologists, the majority of whom are not Christians, I think it's something uh, over 90% of the people who are anthropologists are not believers. But one of the things that they found in civilization after civilization, in fact, they've determined this is a mark of a civilization, is religion. It, across the centuries, across the world, in every civilization, no matter how primitive, no matter how advanced, there's some religious element, people reaching towards God, always. And you can either say that's the most bizarre quirk of evolution, or the writer of Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in the hearts of every person he's created. There's a stirring in us for to connect with something beyond us. The struggle is trying to identify what that is. But again, throughout history, across the world, every circumstance you can think of, when people gather, one of the things that they do when they gather is they start asking, why am I here? And they start looking to whatever their understanding of God is for meaning to that question and answering that question. And so we don't have a lot of time for this today, but I do want to just mention this real quick. God is looking for relationships. Some people say 
God's looking for rule followers. That's not the case. I read you the rule. There's one that he gave to Adam. One. Don't eat from that tree. That's it. That was the only. There was one. That doesn't seem unreasonable to me. Do whatever you want, Adam. You can eat from any of these other trees. Here's the garden. Work in it. Do whatever you want. Just don't eat from that one. One rule in the midst of massive amounts of freedom. God is not some accountant up there with a big book saying, let's see how many rules you broke today. There's really only two rules for us. Love God and love people. That's it. Jesus said the greatest command was to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Paul says in Galatians 5, the whole law, that's the, the Old Testament, can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. God does not have a bunch of rules he's asking you to keep. He's got two. Love him and love other people. And the thing about him that's pretty cool is not only does he tell you what the rules are, he enables you to keep them. In Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, I can't remember the whole thing, but the, the heart is this. I'll put my spirit within you and move you to keep my commands. And you'll be careful to keep my laws. Not only does he say, here are the rules, there's only two of them, but I'm going to help you keep them. And then, in case you break them, I'll forgive you. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is not looking for rule followers. Like Bo said earlier, he's looking for sons and daughters. Many of us choose to live like slaves because we don't understand the kind of father that we have. We think he's constantly looking over our shoulder. Did you mess up today? Did you mess up today? Did you mess up today? Did you mess up? It's not what he's doing. There's two rules. He will enable you to keep them. And when you screw up, and you will, he'll forgive you if you ask. It doesn't get much better than that. He's not looking for rule followers. He's looking for a relationship with sons and daughters. Second thing I would say about rules is they're necessary for any relationship. Every relationship you're in, if you don't like the word rules, use guidelines. Use expectations, something else. They're in every relationship. Every sport you've ever played, every game you've ever played, there has been rules. And if you did not have rules, you could not play. If I say a basket's worth two points and you say a basket's worth 17 points, I never get to win. We have to agree on how many points a basket's worth. We've got to agree, is a, does a king beat a queen or does a queen beat a king? Or we can't play. There are rules in every sport, in every game. And the same thing is true in relationships. We did a marriage here yesterday. Marriage is the wedding. We did a marriage. We did a wedding here yesterday. They're still alive. We did a wedding here yesterday. Wedding is just laying out expectations, the rules of this relationship, and then saying, yeah, I'm in. At the beginning, there's this thing called the declaration of intent where you look at the guy and say, will you blank, take blank to be your wife in holy marriage? Will you love her, honor her, keep her, cherish her, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? And he says, I will. And you say the same thing to her, and she says, I will. And then they do the vows, which is just saying that stuff I just said, I'm going to say again. I'm going to be with you in sickness and in health and for better, for worse, and richer and poor and forsaking all others, be with you until I die. It's laying out the rules, the expectations, the guidelines of this relationship that we're entering into. Every relationship you have, there's this, it's, y'all have all lived with somebody. You live with your parents, you've lived with kids, you've lived with roommates, and they're always house rules, or there's chaos. Someone has to take out the trash, and we've got to agree on how that's determined. We agree when we're going to eat, and who's going to cook, and who's going to clean up after dinner and how we're going to talk to each other and whether we say yes, sir, or whether we say yeah, or what we agree on all of that. 
so we can relate to one another. Every relationship has an, a foundation of expectations if you don't like the word rules. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. He's not a stickler. It's not like he's saying to relate to me is, is radically different than if you relate to everybody else. He just lays it on the table. This is what it looks like. These are the two things. You love me and you love people. And I'll help you do it. And when you mess up, I'll forgive you. That's what he's looking for. And that's what every one of us is designed for. That's the first thing, communion with God. The second thing that you need if you, for best results is meaningful work. God told Adam to work the garden. And that wasn't just so Adam wouldn't be bored. He was giving him something to do. We're all created to do something meaningful. We might think that the ideal life is to be so rich we can eat bonbons and watch Oprah all day, but that's not, that's not it. You were made for meaningful work. I'm not talking about the job you get paid to do. I'm talking about the things that you were created to do. Ephesians 2.10 says that God created good works in advance for all of us to do. If you're alive, then there's something good that God wants you to do. And it, you might get paid to do it, and you might not get paid to do it. This is not about your job. It's about your calling. And you have one if you're a person. There are good things that God wants for you to do, and if you're not doing them, part of you on the inside will die because you were created for meaningful work. The third thing you were created for is regular rest. After God created everything, he took a break, not because he was tired, but because he was setting a rhythm for us because we get tired. You work and then you rest. In the Bible, those things are called Sabbaths. I don't care what you call them. I just care that you do it. You are not made to run forever. In our world, rest is a cuss word. It's a sign of weakness. We don't do that. We always need to either be producing or consuming so somebody else can produce what we just consumed. We don't rest because then we're not productive. We're not contributing to the economy. We're not contributing, period. We're just resting. And that's, that's not good where we live. And where we live is bent. The Bible says rest regularly. If you're not doing that, you're not, not, not going to get the best results out of your life. You're finite. You can't run in the red line for that long. You've got to make a point to rest. And the last one, and this is where we're going to spend our time, is life-giving relationships. If you read through Genesis 1, again, whatever you think about 24-hour days or billions of years or whatever, what you can see is that everything God made, he declared good. Light, good. Sun, good. Moon, good. Stars, good. Oceans, good. Lands, good. Plants are good. Insects are good. Animals are good. Adam alone, not good. It's interesting that everything he made is good except Adam being by himself. Adam is in literally paradise, perfect environment. No sin has entered the world. There's no sin. There's no sickness. There's no death. There's no confusion. There's no doubt. There's no misunderstanding. None of that stuff. He is literally living in perfection, and God can say it's not good. And some of you need to hear this. He had a perfect relationship with God, and it still wasn't good. He needed something else. He needed Eve. God brings all of the animals by him to see if any of those are going to match. God knows it's not going to be a match, but he does it anyway. None of those fit. And then he makes Eve. And she's a fit. And you can see Adam's response. He's thinking, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. This is what I've been waiting for. We're created for these life-giving relationships. And it's not... This is not a married single thing. Don't hear me saying that. This is a life-giving relationships, 
not. This is isolated, connected. That's what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about being married or single. You can be single and you can have a number of fruitful, these life-giving relationships. You can be married and be as isolated and cut off as if you were living on a desert island. It's about the quality of your relationship. We'll talk about that in a second. So Genesis 1 and 2, for best results, you have to have a relationship with God. I would say that's number one. You need all four, but if you're only going to take one, you've got to take that one. Jesus says, what good does it do for a guy to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And the implied answer is none. It doesn't do you any good. You get everything you want. If you forfeit your soul, it's not worth anything. You're going to be on this earth for 75 or 80 years, and then you're going to live forever afterwards. So why don't you get that squared away first? So that's number one. You're created for a relationship with God. Number two, you're created for meaningful work. Number three, you need regular rest. And number four, you need to be in life-giving relationships with other people. We're focusing on life-giving relationships because I think it's the hardest to enter into and the most difficult to maintain. God wants you, so he won't let you ignore him for long before he comes after you. In Luke 15, he's described as this shepherd who goes looking for the one lost sheep. He leaves 99 who are safe, goes for the one who's wandered away, deliberately wandered away. That's God. He's always on the lookout. He doesn't write anybody off, so he won't let you ignore him for long. The um, meaningful work, most of us feel restless if we're not doing something meaningful. There's this kind of low-grade frustration that we feel when we know, you know what, this isn't working out. i got to find something else. Again, I'm not talking about your job, but about your calling. And we're not, when we're not connected in with what we were created to do, most of us feel that just, again, it's this kind of low-grade frustration with our life, and we start looking around for something else to plug into. The thing about rest, just look in the mirror. That'll tell you whether you're resting or not. If you've got big bags under your eyes, if you need a cup of coffee in order to get out of bed, you're not resting enough. You, your body will let you know if you're not doing that. Those first three, there's bullhorns that will yell at you if you're not doing those. But many of us can go for many years without meaningful relationships and never know that we don't have them. And again, it's because we're in the midst of so many people. We can think we have these genuine relationships and really all we have are a bunch of superficial acquaintances. And that's why I want to talk a little bit more. In order to move into these general, these genuine relationships, Genesis 2 calls them, says, naked and unashamed. Naked, naked, and unashamed. You can decide however you want to say that, depending on where you're from. Is anybody here from above Virginia, north of Virginia? Say that word, N-A-K-E-D. All right, y'all are wrong. So we're going to say <laughs> naked. I'm joking. They say, what's the difference? Naked is when you're not wearing clothes, and naked is when you're not wearing clothes and you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. It's something like that. So that's not what I'm talking about. And I don't think that's what God was talking about either. The Bible's rated G. So, so that's what we're looking for, these type of relationships that God describes as naked and unashamed, where people, Adam and Eve, are freely being who they are, and that's what we want to get to. We want to get to a place. We want to have friends who we can be that way with, who really see us for who we are. And that can sound so elementary school, but it's not. It's a very, they're difficult, I believe, to enter into these relationships and to maintain them long term. It, it requires intentionality. None of these things just happen. 
by accident. Like I said, if you're married, that doesn't guarantee that you have this type of a relationship. Just spending a lot of time with somebody or doing a lot of things together does not mean that they know who you are. It just means you spend a lot of time with them and you do a lot of things together. That's Honestly, that's a trap in marriage. People can think because we've shared so much life together, we truly know each other. Not necessarily. I was talking to a counselor about a year ago, and uh, he told me that he sees more couples at year 17 than any other year. Year 17, because at that point, most of the, the kids are either gone or getting gone, and you look across the table and say, I'm not sure I know you, and I'm not sure that we want to do this for the next 17 years. There's a trap in marriage that just because you're spending time with somebody or doing things with them that you're sharing heart. It's not, again, this is not a married single thing. It's, it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or extrovert. You can have a ton of friends. You can be busy every weekend. You can have a scrapbook full of memories, and you can still not have any of these genuine life-giving relationships. This is not about how many people you have on speed dial. This is about whether or not you have a handful of people who know you inside and out. It's not about whether or not you can get 50 people to come to your birthday party. Popularity is when people know your name. Genuine relationships is when people know you. It's not the same thing. This is intentional. None of this happens by accident. It requires transparency, which is allowing people to see into your life, and vulnerability, which is allowing people to speak into your life, and you need both. And both of those things are intentional choices. If you're transparent without vulnerable, that means you share. And you know people like this. They'll, they'll, they'll share. They just don't want to hear what you have to say about it. That's like going to the doctor and telling him everything that's wrong with you and then getting up and walking out before he can tell you what the prescription is to fix what's wrong with you. It's silly. You, you do need to be transparent, but you also need to be vulnerable. There are people who will let folks speak into their life. They're vulnerable, but they never really let them in. They're not transparent. That's like just calling the doctor and saying, something's wrong, can you write me a prescription? And hoping he gets it right. You need both. You can't have one without the other, or it's, it's silly. It's pointless. It won't, it won't work. You've got to be transparent, and you've got to be vulnerable. That's naked without shame. And it's not easy to take those first few steps. I think there's several obstacles that we face, particularly where we live, that keep us out of these type of life-giving relationships. For some of us, it's apathy. If, if you don't recognize that there's a problem, you're probably not going to do anything to change it. And I've tried to address that. You can decide whether I was effective or not. But I would say this. If you don't feel a need for these type of relationships, just do an experiment for one week. This is just pray this one-sentence prayer. God, if I need these type of friends, show me. Just that. And then see what he does. And see if he shows. Just be willing to, for him to show you if that is indeed the case. I absolutely believe it to be so. I think it's true. You see it from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Jesus wasn't a loner. He, if, if Adam lived in perfection and he needed life-giving relationships and Jesus was perfection embodied and he pulled together a group of 12 and then within that a smaller group of three to live life with him, how much more do we? who are wrecks, living in a wrecked world, need those type of relationships. So if you're apathetic, I would just say, God, if I need these type of relationships, show me. You don't have to take my word for it. See what he says. Second thing, some people, it's just a logistical problem. I don't have time. 
And when I look at my life, I don't see those kind of people. And that's legitimate. I mean, absolutely, that is legitimate. We're running around. I got to get to cello practice and soccer and gymnastics and all these different things. I don't have time to develop these type of relationships. And even if I had time, I look at the people in my life, and honestly, I'm not seeing the quality there. I don't see the people who I'm around that I'm willing to share at this level with. I don't trust them, or they're, just, they're, they're, not, they're not people who are going to help me move forward in life. And if that's you, I would say, first, ask God for help. You don't have to figure it out on your own. If you honestly, in your life, don't see that type of a friend, ask God to bring you that type of a friend. And if you don't have time, I would say you do have time. Two hours a week is all you need. There's 168 hours in a week. You give two. I think that's 1.2%. You got that. You have that much margin in your week. You can devote 2% of your, you can devote two hours, 1% of your time to developing these type of relationships. This is for best results. This is not for optional extra. This is one of the top four thing elements you need in your life. It's worth 1% of your time to invest in. So begin to make a step. This girl who I quoted earlier who wrote this book, I think it was called The Happiness Project, she realized, I think she was the editor of the new, eh, I can't remember. She's really smart. She's the editor of something. So she realized she didn't have friends. And so what she did, which this is a little cold, but she's made goals for herself to develop X number of friendships over this particular period of time because she realized she didn't have them and she was so busy, she was, it wasn't going to happen for her unless she basically put it on her Blackberry and said, I'm going to do this. And that might be you. And I would say, although that does not seem romantic at all, absolutely necessary and right and good, if you don't have, if you don't have the natural space in your life to develop these type of deep relationships, then you need to create it because it's, it's vital. It's absolutely vital. It's vital biblically, and it's vital. Science proves it out as well. So there's an apathy issue. There could be a logistics issue. I think for more people, there's a fear issue. And I think this looks two different ways. You kind of have the junior high cafeteria fear when you walk in that first day and you're trying to figure out what table to sit at, and you would rather pretend than sit by yourself. We still have that as adults. A lot of us would rather pretend than be alone. And so we put on a mask. What do I need to be today? What do I need to be around y'all? Do I need to be the funny guy? Do I need to be the smart guy? Do I need, like, who do I need to be in order to, for you to let me sit at your table? Because I'd rather do that than have to sit by myself. And that's real for a lot of people. You still feel that. And then I think the other fear, it's kind of high school prom. I would rather not go than risk getting rejected. And so I just don't even ask. And that fear of being rejected keeps us from engaging with people. I would rather not have friends and just say, I don't need them, or I'm too busy for them, or whatever, than risk stepping out and somebody saying, eh, I'm not interested. You're a mess, freak, or whatever, and walk away from us. Let me just say this about the fear. I'll see if I can dispel it. You absolutely 100% are guaranteed to get hurt at some point. So you don't need to be afraid of it because it's going to happen. So remove the fear. Jesus was rejected by his family, rejected by his countrymen, betrayed by one of his 12 best friends. Not just betrayed, oh, he gossiped about me, betrayed, turned over to be killed. He said, 
if it happened to him, it's going to happen to us. So just, yes, absolutely. At some point, you're going to get burned on some level. It's worth it. It's worth the risk because you need these types of relationships. This is maybe a little technical. God works in a lot of different ways, and we call those things means of grace, channels of grace, avenues of grace into our life. One of the ways he works is through other people. If you don't have these type of relationships in your life, what you've done is you've cut off one of the ways God works. And you've, get, you've given him less to work with in your life. One of the primary ways he speaks to us is through other people. Um, Brandon, when he did the welcome, was mentioning last week we did baptisms. And one of the things we did during those baptisms is I put a, a stack of note cards under everybody's chair and said, while we're praying for the people who are being baptized, if God puts a something in your mind for them, some encouraging word, whether it's a picture or a Bible verse or, you know, there were people who wrote words, just one word, laugh, breathe, just write it down and we'll give it to them. And Kim spent all week pulling this stuff together. There were, I read, my daughter got baptized and we went through her thing. She holds that journal with 35 or 40 encouraging words that came from y'all. They, that's how God spoke to her. And there's, 10 other people who have a stack of index cards that it's God speaking to them. If you don't have life-giving relationships, you, you miss all of that. You said God can't work in your life at all. The only way he's going to work is if a bush catches on fire and doesn't burn up or if he, an angel shows up in your bedroom. That doesn't happen all the time, guys. If that's what you're waiting on, you're going to be waiting for a while. It's, it's, this is how it happens. It's us going to lunch together. It's you calling somebody. It's, that's what it is, making the effort to establish these relationships. And don't let fear keep you from doing it. We've talked about this for several weeks. You can be a slave of fear or you can be a son of God, man or woman. You can be a son of God. Choose. Don't choose slave of fear. Fear is a terrible taskmaster, and it will keep you from every good thing God wants. The last thing is inertia. I think this is also where a lot of us feel it kind of fits into the logistics thing. We get in relational ruts. I was talking to someone the other day, and she, she was saying that when she gets around her older sister, her words where she just melts. She goes back to being the younger sister. She's, a, she's an independent woman. She's strong. She has all kind. Of, but when she gets around her sister, she just kind of goes back into younger sister mode. And we all do that. We all kind of get in these relational ruts and it's difficult to break out of them and don't think that time alone is going to do it you have to make a choice if there's a guy and all y'all ever do is talk about the braves you're only going to ever talk about the braves until somebody talks about something other than the braves and those words aren't just going to naturally come out of your mouth you're going to have to choose to say them and when you do you're going to say because you're used to talking about the braves so how's he going to respond when you talk about something else that's tricky if all you ever do is go shopping with this girl, that's a stereotype, sorry. If that's all you ever do and you talk about, you know, whatever activities for the kids or hair or whatever it is that you talk about, that's not going to change until one of you says, let's talk about something else. I was thinking about this. I'm feeling this way. That's, someone has to change the course of the relationship. Inertia will keep you going in the same direction. And we get that in relationships. You're in a rut. Get out of it. And it requires a choice, and there's a risk, and all of those things that come.
But don't think that just spending more time doing the same thing is going to produce a different result. That's crazy. It's not going to. Next week, this has not been a long advertisement. I don't want to lose the reality of this. Next week, we're going to be talking about small groups in here, which is one way that you can connect with other people. If you don't do a small group with us, I honestly don't care. I think we've got great small group leaders. I think we've got great small groups. But if you've already, if you've got people and you don't need the small group, then all right. I just want you to have people. If you don't, this is a great way to connect. The purpose of our small groups is to facilitate these type of life-giving relationships. Well, I'm not going to know anybody. Who cares? It doesn't matter. These relationships require you to make a choice. It doesn't matter if you've known somebody for 20 minutes or 20 years. You've got to make a choice to open up your heart and say, this is what's going on. And it's never easy. It always is a risk. So it doesn't matter how well or how not well you know someone. These are just an opportunity for you to connect with other people who are saying, this is what I want. This is what I'm going for. I'm looking for these life-giving relationships. If you don't, if you don't find something here, find something somewhere. You have to have them. One of the four elements that's necessary for best results. You need a relationship with God. Absolutely. You need to figure out, you need meaningful work. You need to discern, what is God calling me to? We spent a lot of time on that at the beginning of the year. If you don't know, come talk to me and we'll figure it out. You need regular rest. If you're wiped out all the time, something's got to change. You need to rest and you need these life-giving relationships. You need people who you can be naked and not ashamed with. Good? Let's pray. Bo, you guys can come back.